Hello everybody, um, it only feels like about two minutes since I was speaking to you before. That's probably because it was only about two minutes, but uh, this is my much anticipated, but not by my wife, bonus episode to episode 13, which was my interview with Nick Adderley. So as I said uh, in the introduction to the Nick Adderley interview, there's a lot gone on in the last week or so for policing, so I thought it'd be useful just to go back over some of those bits and bobs and give you my perspective to maybe either help you understand things better or, for that matter, provide free counselling for me uh, to come to terms with some of the uh, frequent nonsense that seems to have infected the public narrative around UK policing. So the way that I'm going to approach this is that um, I'm going to adopt a method that was taught to me as a new sergeant uh, many years ago, uh, which is popularly known as the shit sandwich. So I was taught when I became a sergeant for the first time that if you want to give someone feedback, which sometimes can be uncomfortable, you uh, give them the shit sandwich. So that is you tell them something good, and then you tell them the thing that you really want to tell them. And then you tell them something fairly good at the end so that you set them off not feeling absolutely terrible about themselves. So in the same way, I'm going to treat um, this episode as a bit of a shit sandwich, but it's got to be a double-decker shit sandwich. I'm going to tell you something good about policing from the last week, then something not so good, and then something good and then something not so good okay i'm not sure if that's a double decker shit sandwich or a triple decker but either way i think you get where i'm coming from so the first uh, thing that i'm just going to talk about is the really fantastic feedback that the uk police service received at the recent g7 summit down in cornwall so I know from my own experience of policing that these events are many, many uh, years often in the planning. And um, the the planning team down in Devon and Cornwall will have been working with all of the other forces around the UK, as well as the Home Office and a whole range of other political and uh, emergency services and military partners in order to plan for that event. So obviously when you have all of the major leaders of every sort of uh, Western power turning up in one place, that poses a massive logistical challenge uh, in order to keep them all safe and to ensure that there's no unwelcome intrusions into the uh, event itself. So the police service was mobilized in the way that uh, these events require the service to be. So that means that every force in the UK has to supply a certain number of officers and specialist resources to attend that sort of week-long event. And there'll be a many, many, many days beforehand and afterwards. And it's a, it's a massive logistical effort. And hats off to the team who, who did that because... Certainly from where I was sitting, it looked like a fantastically well-organised and um, successful event. Um, so the, the feedback that was um, uh, from a number of different places uh, regarding the, the British cops 
down there was was really brilliant. And there was one particular uh, article in a newspaper or a online uh, article uh, from Cornwall Live, which was really heartwarming, I find. It was two police officers uh, wearing their very cool uh, sunglasses and their full uniform eating what I believe are rocket lollies. So those are the, it uh, doesn't really matter what sort of lollies they are, does it really? But having two children of under 10 years old, I recognised those lollies straight away as rocket lollies. And they both were smiling from ear to ear and looking very relaxed. And the article was praising British police, particularly the police officers who had come to Cornwall from literally every corner of the UK. The feedback from local people, from businesses had been really positive, saying they were just an absolute credit to the organisation, a credit to themselves. They were very friendly and approachable. And it was obviously uh, a nice, nice sunny time down there. And whilst I've got no doubt that that event created all sorts of challenges for individual officers, leaving their families, having to stay away from home, probably being accommodated in accommodation that is generally in these things not very good, uh, sleeping in sleeping bags on floors and all sorts of school halls. And my goodness, I've just I've been there myself, so I know what it's like. It's generally you're not in four-star accommodation. Um, but they, they, they really were a credit. And um, it was so nice to see the um, contrast between the narrative regarding the police officers at G7 compared to the overwhelmingly negative, hostile and toxic narrative from the London media. So, uh, so yeah, so well done, everybody. I've got no doubt whatsoever that, um, as well as giving a big shout-out to the G7 officers, I think it's only fair to also give a shout-out to all of those officers like Cinderella, who had to stay back at home um, and carry on delivering a service 24-7 to the local communities because I know, again, from my own experience, how difficult that is to ensure that the standards of service that you deliver aren't um, massively diminished. But that will mean that those officers at home will have had many rest days cancelled, will have been working extended hours. So rather than working an eight or a nine hour day, they'll have been working 12 hour days. Um, and that has an impact. That has an impact on them. It has an impact on their families. So bloody good show. So now, uh, unfortunately, um, I'm going to have to deal with the filling of the sandwich. Um, and the first filling is the really rather shocking and depressing media reaction and government reaction to the Daniel Morgan inquiry uh, in the last 24, 48 hours. So for anyone who doesn't know what that was all about, um, our old friend, Theresa May, who is the one, we'll remind you, who thought it was a good idea to get rid of 20,000 police officers and 23,000 uh, members of police staff and impose financial restrictions on UK policing over a 10-year period that resulted in many, many, many hundreds of police stations closing, the dismantlement of neighbourhood policing and uh, the consequent um, you know, rise of horrific levels of knife and gun crime and county lines and all of these things that, that I believe were a direct consequence of 
all of those cuts. Um, so she uh, mandated a inquiry into a 1987 murder in London, Cat Catford in southeast London, of a chap called Daniel Morgan, who was a investigative, um, a private investigator. He was found dead in a, in a I believe, a, a pub car park back in 1987. Uh, the long and the short of it is that um, there were a number of different investigations into that murder, and to this date, no one has been brought to justice. So I suppose the first thing I'd really say about that would be I, I want to, you know, I think it's only fair to acknowledge that there is a family, a grieving family here, and, and I think you'd have to have a heart of stone not to feel uh, desperately sad and sorry for them, that the fact that they've lost a, a much-loved member of their family, uh, and no one has, to this date, been brought to justice for that murder. So I think that's the first thing to say. I don't think anyone would would wish to would find any any pleasure in that situation and certainly the UK has got the highest um, pro probably I think the highest uh, rate of detections for murder probably of anywhere in the world so it's very very unusual for a murder not to be resolved uh, in some way however uh, Theresa May um, insisted that this should be reviewed and a board of inquiry was set up in 2013 and the inquiry was given the remit to investigate the murder, investigate the circumstances of the murder, and uh, try and make sense of the long-standing suggestion that there had been a corrupt influence somewhere along the line, uh, or maybe at several stages along the line during the course of that inquiry, which contributed to the fact that the murder was never resolved. And yesterday they came out and announced the outcome of that inquiry after eight years. So it was initially they were told that they had 12 months to do it. It took them eight years to do it. And uh, it also cost 15 million pounds. And yesterday they came out and basically damned the Metropolitan Police as being institutionally corrupt on the basis of that issue that took place in 1987. So there's a whole load of things that I think I probably just need to say about this, uh, probably on behalf of, of the overwhelming uh, number of police officers in the UK who are and always have been scrupulously honest and decent and professional in terms of how they go about their business. So I suppose the first point that I would make is that this was one murder investigation that took place in 1987. So to put that in context, I joined the police in 1989. I retired two years ago and I did my full 30 years service. So we're talking about an incident that took place 34 years ago when most of the people who are currently serving in, in the, the police uh, at a relatively sort of junior ranks, PCs, etc., most of the people weren't even born in 1987. And, uh, you know, and I was, I was 21 years old. So 
to come out with a label of institutional corruption against an entire organisation on the basis of something that happened 34 years ago is, in my view, scandalously unfair. And I think one of the things that I find particularly shocking about the brutal expression institutionally corrupt was that I know perfectly well that when you have an inquiry into almost anything these days, there is a huge amount of thought that goes into the messaging or the narrative of how that news is released and the nuancing, I suppose, for want of a better word, around the judgment, the overall judgments and the impact that that has on interested parties. So I suppose when we talk about interested parties, in this case, we talk about the, the, the Morgan family themselves and, and the, the family and loved ones of Daniel Morgan, first and foremost. We think about, obviously, the police service and those who were actually involved in that situation, albeit it was a very long time ago. And then, of course, you're talking about the, uh, the wider public in terms of what is in the public interest. But it seemed to me that when they um, announced their findings yesterday, which have now been predictably splashed across all of the tabloids, they made no effort whatsoever to acknowledge the fact that these instances are incredibly rare and that uh, the vast, vast majority of police officers go about their business um, with complete professionalism. And, and even in the opening uh, letter in the front of the report, the report is 1,256 pages long, um, and in the very opening section, it's a letter to the Home Secretary from Baroness Nula O'Lone, who led the inquiry. And even in that letter... She accepts in the final paragraph that, I'll quote from her letter to the Home Secretary, the vast majority of police officers act honourably and do not break their rules or engage in corrupt activity, and they do very difficult and at times dangerous work. So why did she or someone from that inquiry not make that crystal clear when they announced the um, the findings. Rather than do that, they came out with this horrific blanket term of institutional corruption. So whilst you can argue all day long about what that actually means, I think if you stopped, you know, 20 people in the street and said to them, if an organisation is institutionally corrupt, what does that mean to you? I think most of them would probably say, well, that means it's it's absolutely riddled with corruption from top to bottom, which which obviously could not be further from the truth in, in the case of the Metropolitan Police. And and again, there's Pearl Dick, who I've got immense respect for uh, on, a, on a sort of personal and a professional level, is yet again having to fight for her job. And predictably, all of the social media that I monitor... Uh, police-related social media. So these are sites that, you know, closed sites, some of them uh, for police officers only, others that more open, like Twitter, etc. That's obviously ablaze with with howls of outrage and frustration that, that they could be so clumsy as to say something like this 
and I, and I do genuinely, genuinely fear now that that we're ra rapidly reaching a point where many police officers are just going to think, oh, you know what, fuck this for a game of soldiers, I'm off. And I must, I must admit that the very fact that it was Theresa May who set this inquiry up back in 2013, there's a golden thread. In fact, I don't even want to use the word golden because that makes it sound like it's a good thing. There's a thread running through all of this ever since that woman became even remotely involved with British policing, it's all gone horribly, horribly wrong. And the next point I would probably make would be this, the sheer cost of that inquiry. So if you go on their website, uh, the costs are, are quite clear. They don't sort of try and hide them in any way. So if you go on the, I think it's www.danielmorganpanel.independent.gov.uk, you can see the costs for yourself. They're all clearly laid out there. And uh, I'm not going to go into each each financial year uh, of that report. But effectively, they were spending approximately £2 million a year on something that was supposed to have taken 12 months. Now, they say because they obviously are very anxious about the costs and how long it took, quite rightly. But they say that that's because the Met were holding things back. Now, whilst there may be all sorts of reasons, I don't know, there may be all sorts of reasons for uh, documents to be, um, you know, evidentially, it could be some of these documents might have been highly sensitive uh, based on human intelligence sources or technical intelligence sources. So I don't know the reasons why it took so long to get the documents they needed. But what I would say would be, was it, was it necessary to keep the entire team on for all of those years spending two million pounds a year to do this? So clearly there's been something of a gravy train here and there are some individuals who are clearly done very, very nicely out of that inquiry. So before you start slinging muck at the entire Metropolitan Police, I strongly suggest you look at the costs of this inquiry and ask yourselves, could you have spent public money in a more careful and uh, responsible way? And I must admit that uh, I shouldn't really find anything terribly shocking anymore, should I, really, having spent 30 years in the police and having listened to, to some unbelievable bullshit uh, during that period of time from the media uh, as well as, you know, criminals. I'm not, by the way, putting the media and criminals in the same bracket, but um, they certainly are very good at coming up with some unbelievable nonsense. Uh, on the, the Daily Mail, front page of the Daily Mail today, mass, massive letters taking up half the pa paper. Uh, rotten to the core. That is the headline of the Daily Mail. You think about that, rotten to the core. And you just think, and a picture of Cressida Dick. And you just think, oh my God, seriously? So I suppose the two newspapers in the UK that are probably most critical of policing over many, many years. One is the Daily Mail, um, and the other one is probably the Guardian. Um, and again, predictably, they were 
full of outrage about the whole thing. So I just suppose what I'd say to anyone is, for goodness sake, um, try and see past these headlines. Try and see this for what it is. It was something that happened such a long time ago, and I'm not trying to suggest that you know we should be completely, we should just bury our head in the sand or adopt a sort of Pollyanna-ish approach to police corruption because I think we should be eternally vigilant for, you know, regarding police corruption. You know, are there there officers in in the police service today? Yes, of course there are. We know there are, Um, but that's what anti-corruption units are set up to to defeat. Um, What sort of percentage do they make up? A tiny, tiny, tiny proportion. I, I, I wouldn't even like to guess, but it's going to be probably less than half a percent of the workforce. Um, are there arseholes in the police um, who, who do things, stupid things? Yeah, of course there are, because um, there's arseholes in every organisation. But my overwhelming experience of policing is that the vast majority of people that I worked with and I knew, and most of the people who I know, and they would say exactly the same, is that most of the people that you work with in the police are, are decent people trying to do a very difficult job. So I just feel desperately sorry for some of the younger people coming through the organisation today who are waking up today and seeing those headlines and thinking, oh my God, this stuff happened you know, before I was even born. What's this got to do with me? Yeah, so there. So now um, another slice of bread in the sandwich. And that for me is the appointment of a new chief constable for Greater Manchester Police, Stephen Watson, who has uh, come out and been really very outspoken about his intentions, uh, what he intends to do as the new chief. And the one that really grabbed my eye when I saw it was um, his absolute refusal to participate in this rather nauseating, virtue-signalling type behaviour that has become all too common for senior police officers in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. And uh, he said that, uh, I'll quote uh, from a newspaper article, this is Lancashire, uh, the level of woke policing has passed a high watermark of tolerance from the public who would rather see officers catch burglars the new head of England's second largest force has said. So um, he said, he went on to say that the public is fed up and that the impartiality of officers could be undermined by responses to campaign groups, including actions such as taking the knee or wearing their pins, badges or rainbow shoelaces. He's also come out and uh, said that he is going to insist on every crime that is reported to Greater Manchester being investigated And he's also talked about wanting to see officers presenting a much smarter appearance, which, as you probably know from things I've said before and written, is one of my bugbears. I find the modern police uniform quite scruffy in many ways, maybe more practical than the old police uniform, but it's unbelievably scruffy and uh, very rare uh, seeing officers wearing hats outside the police station, um, slovenly, hands in pockets, all this kind of nonsense. So he wants to see an end to that in Greater Manchester, which I applaud him for. And he's also made some quite controversial comments around visible tattoos. Now, again, that's a 
a very divisive subject and I know that a lot of police officers now it's a sort of a generational thing really when I was a young police officer there was very few officers had tattoos and there were those that did tended to be ex-military or navy or something like that and um, but then as time's gone on then it's become more and more common to see everyone not just police officers lots and lots of people in their sort of 20s and 30s with tattoos now I'm not saying that having a tattoo makes you a bad person because it obviously don't lots of my friends have got tattoos but I do think that um, it's probably better to keep tattoos covered up and lots of police officers I've read on social media saying things like, you know, when I speak to a particular villain in the cell block or someone out in the street, it's often a good way of sort of building a rapport with them because we talk about our respective tattoos and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't necessarily disagree that that might be a useful way of building rapport. When I'm, but what I'd say is it's not the only way of building rapport. And um, I think police officers should be um, extremely well presented and professional and able to interact with anyone of any age and from any social background. And if you've got tattoos, in my view, this is you know slightly controversial opinion, I suppose, because of my age and my 55-year-old bloke, I do think um, you know what you do in your spare time isn't up to you, but I do think it's... Um, Probably better to keep them covered up. So anyway, I've probably blabbered on enough about tattoos. You can tell it's a bit of a pet hate of mine. But yeah, um, Stephen Watson, um, I wish him well. I think it's so refreshing to hear a chief constable talking about, you know, God help us, investigating crime and catching burglars and all of this stuff rather than this rather annoying sort of trying to be really right on. And uh, the very sort of final, um, rather dreary and depressing, uh, sorry to end on a low point, um, but uh, there was a, last week there was a, a sort of a, a bit of a flurry of negative headlines in respect of policing uh, again. And um, The Guardian was talking about the very low number of police officers who... Um, you know, were disciplined, uh, who had been facing either sexual abuse or domestic abuse allegations. And there was also the publication of a uh, book by ex-Chief Superintendent Palm Sandu from the Metropolitan Police. And she came out to describe her uh, experiences of, in her view, being disadvantaged because of her ethnicity um, coming from, I believe, a Sikh background um, and has written this book called Black and Blue, One Woman's Story of Policing and Prejudice. And, uh, and she described in, in one of the articles that I read that um, she was alleging that um, institutional racism in the Met uh, is even worse than it was back in the days of Stephen Lawrence. So I'll deal with that one first and then I'll come back to the um, the one about the sexual and domestic abuse. So I don't know. The first thing to say, I don't know Palm Sandu. Never met her. As far as I'm concerned, she might be the might have been the best police officer in the world. Um, she might have been the worst. Um, I don't know. But it seems to me that to make an allegation of that sort, that 
institutional racism is worse today than it was back in the days of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry is just silly. I'm sorry, Palm, if you're listening to this, it's silly. Um, you know, those of us who have lived through that entire period of policing for a long, a lot over many, many years, uh, went through the, the pain of, um, you know, having to have these very unfair allegations directed towards us as an entire profession. Um, I've worked alongside many, many black and Asian officers over the years and, and you know, our relationships have always been extremely good. I've never seen any overt acts of um, sort of prejudicial behaviour um, in front of me. I'm not saying that that didn't happen behind closed doors because you just don't know, do you? But uh, I've never, I've never seen it. I've never seen it out in the street, and you know. So I just think there's people out there clearly with a bit of an axe to grind, and and I would really ask anyone to who sees those sort of headlines to sort of try and read beyond the headline and say has this person is this person a um disgruntled ex-employee uh what if they are what what are they disgruntled about is it because they weren't promoted is it is it is there, is there some other reason that, that might give them a motive to to say something as as just silly as that because it is silly that's the only word you can use to describe it um the other the other thing about the low number of police officers um, facing disciplinary action who've had either sexual abuse or domestic abuse allegations made against them, um, again, I, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are, um, but I suppose what I would say is, if if someone has an allegation made against them of a criminal nature, um, then it's absolutely right that that should be investigated as a crime, and and I feel entirely confident from my own experience of seeing this in the service anyone who has an allegation of a criminal nature made against them is investigated it's treated they're, no, they're treated no differently to a member of the public they get if the, if the evidence is there they get arrested they get interviewed um, there'll, there'll be statements taken there'll be all the usual things done in the course of that investigation but if it, if at the end of all of that uh, there is insufficient evidence uh, or no evidence then to sort of say that a police officer should then face a double jeopardy so that even if there's no evidence, then they should still be disciplined strikes me as being potentially grossly unfair. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong here. I was a detective inspector in a public protection unit for quite a long time and I you know, saw it firsthand, the, the, the dreadful uh, impact of domestic abuse and sexual abuse and you know so I'm not sort of making excuses for people who who uh, who behave in, in that way not at all but what I would say is that if we're going to have a situation where police officers are treated differently to members of the public and that there's some sort of lower standard of criminal proof required to effectively kick them out of the job on the basis of something that couldn't be proved in a criminal court, then I think we're heading into a very, very slippery slope. So where do you draw the line there? Do you say that anyone who makes an allegation of anything against a police officer uh, in order to basically get them into trouble? Are we saying that then that police officer should be subject to misconduct proceedings, even if there's no evidence? Um, is, you know, 
you've got to be really careful with this kind of stuff. So I just think, um, again, I would put it all in a box that says yet another example of very selective use of evidence in order to undermine UK policing. And, and I'm still really struggling to understand why this is happening at the moment or what is the end game? What does the end game of all of this look like to the likes of the Daily Mail or the Guardian or the the Diane Abbotts of this world or the, the people who routinely sort of whip up this sort of frenzy of of hatred towards policing. What what is it that you're actually trying to achieve here? Because if uh, I'll tell you what you are going to achieve, you are going to achieve a complete demoralisation of the police service. You're going to put people from Black and Asian and ethnic minority um, communities off from joining the police in the first place. You're going to demoralise police officers who will not want to go out and um, enforce the law so they'll turn a blind eye to things that they should be getting involved in because they're too scared of getting into trouble. So, uh, And the net result of all of that will be that the streets will be infinitely more unsafe for everyone. So, okay. Right, I'm going to leave it there and uh, I'll see you again I don't see you a lot. I shall be chatting to you again with my next guest next week. Bye.